You are now listening to The Seedcast. This week on the Seedcast, Andrew Nall and Julia Luft welcome bladesmith and blacksmith Jasper Hurt to the show. For Jasper, what began with a simple curiosity and DIY experiment quickly turned into a humble fascination and six years of forging. Over the past few years, he has built a business around blades and metalwork that are equal parts utilitarian and artisan. In this episode, Jasper walks us through the technical aspects of manipulating metal and the importance of cultivating relationships to both handmade objects and their maker. So without further ado, episode 28 of the Seedcast featuring bladesmith and blacksmith Jasper Hurt. Enjoy! Welcome back to the Seedcast, everyone. This is, of course, Andrew Nault hanging out with Julia Luft. Good morning. And today we are very excited to have bladesmith and blacksmith Jasper Hur on the show. Thanks for joining us, dude. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, so we always like to start out with when you started out. When did you start getting into what you're doing? I started blacksmithing about six years ago when I was 14. I had just gotten into it from things I saw on YouTube. I was really interested in knife making at the time and I found that you had to have a forge for that. So I built a forge <laughs> and, uh, and just started going at it. How the hell do you build a forge? Yeah, what does that involve? <laughs> you, uh, you go through your garage and find a hairdryer and some pieces of wood and some <laughs> whatever you can find and, <laughs> and, uh, it together i did a lot of so i didn't have access to a welder or anything like that at the time so i had to get creative with uh how i designed it and the first forge i built was actually made out of wood which you can imagine is not ideal for a forge yeah it's made out of wood and then it had like cast cement or something in the fire pot area and uh, it fell apart pretty quick <laughs> but i was able to <laughs> i was able to make some stuff yeah so other than seeing some things on the internet, is this something that you were interested in for a while? Not really. Uh, it's just kind of my personality, especially growing up is like, oh shit, that's cool. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to try it. <laughs> and, you know, I've done all kinds of stuff. Like I know how to juggle. I know how to ride a unicycle. I know how to solve a Rubik's cube. I know how to ski, skateboard, rock climb, like <laughs> all kinds of stuff. But uh, yeah, I just like, think something's cool so i go for it so that's just kind of how i got into it what made this different this time of like this is what i want to do career-wise like occupationally this is what i want uh, oh, to well i only decided that i wanted to do it as my job like a year ago like i never thought that i would ever want it to be my job okay mm-hmm. and the reason why i've stuck with it is i mean a couple reasons one of the reasons is like I was sick of learning things and getting to the point where it was too hard and then like quitting and trying something else. Mm. Like I felt like I had a lot of interest, but I wanted to like stick with a couple things. And so that was one of the things I wanted to stick with. And uh, I think 
I kept doing it because it was so hard. Like I yeah. sucked mm-hmm. at it mm-hmm. really hard. Yeah. That's part of what I guess gave me the motivation to get better at it. Mm-hmm. Keep doing it. Mm-hmm. So you built this forge in your garage or something like what was your first experience? Like, was it terrible? Was it useful at all? Well, the first time I tried to fire it, I put like charcoal that you would grill with, <laughs> but you can use like lump charcoal. Like, uh, but the stuff that I was using is like stuff you put in your grill that has like, you know, fuel in it and stuff. But you can't use that. You have to have like lump charcoal okay. and you can forge with that. But yeah, I, I wasn't able to actually make anything for a minute. But once I found coal, I was really able to actually start making some stuff. That's wild. <laughs> Did you have um, somebody that you apprenticed with or a mentor or was this all self-driven um, and self-directed? It's been mostly self-directed and driven. But um, when I was 15 or 16, I think 16, I, uh, I took a basic blacksmithing class at Haywood Community College. And that was really, really helpful and gave me, I went in there like, oh, I'm, I'm past like basics. Like, I don't know what I'm doing, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I learned so much and it's really been the foundation of my knowledge. Really what was, what I hated in the moment, but what I really am grateful for now is that most of that class was in the classroom, like learning about metallurgy and, and mm. the science and the physics of how it all works. That was actually the majority of the class, uh, which I think is something I want to talk about more later. But one thing that I think is so important about it is a lot of people who are into this craft or knife making or blacksmithing might overlook that part of it because it's not just an art and a craft, you know, it's also a science. There's a lot of science and stuff that goes into it. So. Science and like understanding the metals and how they react yeah, and stuff the like that. Yeah, chemistry of how they react and the physics of how they move. Yeah. Interesting. How much of that do you take into account in the preliminary stages? I think understanding the physics of how it works just comes with experience, you know, because when you're forging something, you have to look 10 steps ahead. You have to know if I hit it here, it's going to move here. Really, metal moves exactly the same way as clay, hmm. but it's just slower, and you have to hit it really hard. And so, <laughs> <laughs> and it can be really challenging to understand how the metal moves when you first start. Um, some people will demo on a piece of clay or a piece of lead to show how it moves. Hmm. Um, but with the chemistry, when that comes in, you know, when I'm making Damascus, when I'm heat treating stuff like that that's all chemistry and um, how those reactions happen Mm. is it all very like temperature specific or is that not a variable involved yeah temperature is is really important kind of the physics aspect of it is i like this analogy that i've heard of the cow poop theory (laughs) in blacksmithing is it (laughs) analogy called the cow poop theory and that's if you imagined if you like jumped into a cow patty on the ground it would (laughs) it would it would go it would go 360 degrees right it would go out all directions sure yeah (laughs) but if you hit it with a baseball bat it would go in the direction that you hit it right sure okay yeah this i'm not making this up this is a this is no this is amazing yeah please yeah (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) um and so that's how it works so our hammers 
some are rounding hammers. They have a flat face and a round face. Some have different peens, which are fullers on the ends that mm-hmm. you can use to direct the metal in different ways. So if you were to hit your steel with the flat face of your hammer or under the power hammer, you hit it with the flat dies, it's going to go 360 degrees in all directions. Right, right. And so we can't forge like that all the time because sometimes we want this part to go down this way and and leave the other part alone because if we only forged with our flat of the hammer we wouldn't be able to really control where that metal's going so right that's where that fuller is a rounding hammer a rounding hammer you have all these different fullers on there because it's like a round face and so if you tilt it this way you get a certain a, a lesser fuller if you hit it in the center you get a wider fuller so you can really control what you're doing and that's the hammer i use mostly now uh, mm-hmm. but using a fuller like that you know like a radius hit that's going to direct the metal to move in the direction that you're hitting it instead of spreading 360 degrees so that's <laughs> really important when it comes to uh when it comes to moving it around interesting recently like a year ago i went to jason knight's shop in tennessee and jason knight is a world-renowned master bladesmith and uh he taught me a lot of things of like how to forge weld in ways that i wasn't doing before and how to heat treat and his knowledge uh has really kind of solidified my confidence in bladesmithing and i'd say when i make a knife now i could describe everything that i'm doing and why i'm doing it and mm-hmm. and stuff mm-hmm. like that i've made about 80 knives this year holy shit <laughs> That's a lot of hammering. Yeah, that's a lot of banging. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm curious with bladesmithing and blacksmithing, are people still pushing the boundaries of what you can do with it? Or is it more like keeping an old tradition alive? Oh, 100%. Like, I think with the technology that we have now and and the machines that we have access to, it's definitely pushing the level of work that these master smiths and people are doing now is is beyond what uh what used to be Mm -hmm. and then i'm curious uh i was looking at a bunch of your your blades online and seeing these like kind of swirled colored designs in the blade which is really beautiful how how is Mm -hmm. that happening how do you do that so that's Damascus. If you're talking about just this, like the silver layers and the black layers, right? Yeah, there was one that had like a copper. Yeah, yeah, copper. The copper laminate is something that this guy Coy Baker taught me, mm-hmm. um, which is actually I found so interesting about you know, and, and really the reason why I've been doing this as my job and I've been taking it to where I am is because it just like feels right and everything just keeps lining up in the right way. So. I was experimenting with that. It's called Kumai, where you put the copper into the steel. And I had made a blade or two out of it, but I still didn't really know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And then I found this guy, Koi, on Instagram, who is a professional at making that type of steel and producing it. And I got to go out to his shop, and he taught me a bunch of stuff. So kind of how that works out sometimes, I think, is pretty crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But he told me his secret method to doing that which i won't reveal really because (laughs) i'm not supposed to right but the idea is copper has a lower melting point than steel obviously Mm -hmm. and that melting point is right at about the forge welding point of steel so you have to get it to the perfect temperature 
where the copper will bond to the steel without melting, which is called solid state diffusion. Mm. Um, so I do some tricks to make sure that I'm measuring the temperature right and not getting over that heat and stuff like that. Mm. And so what you see when there's that copper layer in there mm-hmm. is the copper has forge welded itself to the steel. It's all one homogenous piece. Mm. Uh, which I don't even fully know how that's possible because <laughs> copper and steel are two totally different metals. Mm. Right. But uh, somehow they, they can bond together with the right tricks. And uh, so what you're seeing there when the pattern's on the edge is there's five layers. So the one that y'all posted on Instagram, that one's Damascus and it's got the copper line in it. Mm-hmm. So that Damascus in the center layer, and then it's got two layers of copper around that. And then, two layers of steel on the outside of that. Mm-hmm. So then when you see that line of copper, that's because it's been ground in from the bevels. Got it. Got it. So Damascus is the process of forge welding steel together to create a pattern. Mm-hmm. So I start with two different types of steel, 1084 and 15 and 20. And 15 and 20 is basically the same as 1084, except it has some percentages of nickel in it. And that's what resists the acid when you go to etch it and gives you that pattern. So a lot of what I do is random pattern Damascus. So what what I'm doing is stacking up that. And you have to make sure your metal is perfectly clean when you do this. You stack it up and then you bring it up above 2,000 degrees in the forge. Uh, So you have to make sure that the whole billet is up to that temperature mm-hmm. and then I take it under the press and press it and then it will bond instantly into one piece. So all those, so I start with like 14 or 15 layers. Mm-hmm. Then when I hit it with the press, everything bonds together. And so then I'll draw that out and restack it and I'll restack it until I get usually around 200 layers or <laughs> somewhere in there. <laughs> yeah. And then, so what Koi has been teaching me too is so there's so much you can do with Damascus and you can invent your own patterns and you can do all this. Um, but he's teaching me what's called mosaic Damascus, which is where you're manipulating the pattern on the end grain of the bar. So you're doing different operations to change the shape of the end of the bar, the way the pattern is oriented. And then you're stacking it in different ways to get like explosions or, or different shapes. I'm trying to get the courage to throw a bunch of metal in the forge knowing that I could destroy it all. <laughs> it sounds like with a process like that, there's still room uh, for the materials to surprise you. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. I mean, with Damascus, like you never really know how the pattern's going to look till you're done. Mm. Mm. I mean, mosaic, you can control that outcome better, but every pattern's going to look different, especially with random pattern, which is Part of what I like about random pattern, a lot of times I'll make some random pattern Damascus and I won't look at the pattern. I won't etch it until I'm done. And then once you've done all the grinding, all the hand sanding, and then you get to see that pattern after doing all that work and you have no idea what it's going to look like. It's pretty fun. Yeah, it sounds exciting. So where does the the individual fingerprint like your kind of signature of how you make a blade, when does that come into play? You know, I think I'm still kind of discovering that I'm still Mm -hmm. finding my style and my, um, and I'm thinking that part of that is going to be like I was saying, the the Kumai, the copper laminates, and also the, I've been doing stainless laminates. 
which is uh, not many people do either of those. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, making these exotic steels that not many people make, I think, is something that I want to get into. I also struggle with the idea of, you know, I am making these knives, and I think I can make knives that are like $1,000, right? But I don't, I still am trying to find that market of people who are going to pay that. Because that's what I like to make. I like to push my limits and like make these super fancy knives. But um, really right now, I need to focus more on making some simple stuff that I can sell to people. It's not a thousand dollars. But the thing I think is different from a knife than other forms of art is that, you know, it's, it's obviously a piece of art, but it's also a tool and it's a tool that is uh, higher quality than pretty much anything else you can buy. Right. Mm -hmm. I make sure that my knives are highest quality possible. I use the best quality steel and I am very careful about my heat treating process and, and how all that's mm-hmm. done. Mm-hmm. So I can confidently say that my knives are better than pretty much anything you could buy from a store. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. So that's one of the factors. But also getting into the, the kitchen knives and the chef's knives, there's a lot of chefs that are definitely willing to pay yeah. that much for a quality tool. You know, I've made a lot of chef's knives and kitchen knives, but I still don't think I've come close to mastering it or any it's 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 probably one of the most challenging knives to make hmm. that's part of why i enjoy it hmm. um hmm. i think i'm getting to the point where i could a, a chef would pick up my knife and they would be like yeah this is this is the knife and that's actually happened from my gallery this woman found some of my knives and she thought she wanted one of them and she ended up buying both of them um, Sick. yeah uh, <laughs> and, and she's a chef so so I'm curious, um, you say that you've been able to meet up with a lot of masters of the craft. Is that part of the world kind of, um, like, do you have to have an in? Are people willing to give up that information freely or is it more secretive and kind of like smoke and mirrors? Um, no, I would say that we all all want to really support each other. And what I found is if someone sees that, you have the interest and in in that you're going to go forward with it, then anyone will share whatever they know pretty much is what I've found. That's awesome. Yeah. As long as somebody has like enough respect for the, the craft to continue it. Yeah. Like I have a friend, Brendan, that I actually met at Koi's shop and he's like trying to make it his full-time job too. And so I'm teaching him and I'm going to have him keep coming out to the shop to teach him stuff because I know that, he takes it very seriously and he wants to learn about it and he wants to make it his thing. So yeah, totally. if I can help him out, then I definitely want to. I have a question about um, the history of this. Cause I, I feel like um, blacksmithing very similarly to painting has a very long oh, yeah. history. Um, and I'm curious how informed that process is by that history. Like are, are you still using similar processes to the old masters or are these completely new adapted um, mm. processes and it's just sort of um, adaptations? Uh, I mean, the techniques that I'm using are, are techniques that I've been used for thousands of years. Oh. I mean, I think the only difference between how we're doing it now is that we have machines that can do the processes faster. Okay. Right. But right. Damascus making has been around for thousands of years. Forging knives has been around for a really long time. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, blacksmithing is 
how we have, I think, any of the technology that we have today, because when people started blacksmithing, they discovered that they can make tools out of metal. And that's how we Mm. eventually were able to start manufacturing stuff. It all started out in a coal forge with a hammer. Mm -hmm. So do you feel really like you're trying to stay connected to the old ways? And is that part of the allure of the process for you? Like that feeling of being connected to the past? I think the parts that make me feel connected to the past is when I'm cranking my coal forge and I'm using my blower from 1903. (laughs) Yeah. Using my drill press that's probably 100 years old. Those kind of things and, and the anvils and stuff like that. I think the technology and using the modern equipment kind of pulls away from that feeling a little bit. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of people that practice this craft with only traditional methods and only hand tools and only things like that. Uh, I don't have the patience for that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I've made knives before with just files and I know that I never have to do that again. Yeah. Right. I mean, the only reference point that I have is painting. And so it's like, you can, I like building my canvases and that is no longer completely necessary because you can buy pre-made canvases and they're really sturdy and, you know, they're manufactured canvases for a reason. A machine made them. They're going to be really tight. They're going to be a nice surface to work on. But Mm. there's something that I like about being connected to this material that I'm working with um, that compels me to build this canvas myself. I like the control. I like the materiality. I um, like um, mastering that part of the craft. Uh, Mm. But there are also people who mix their own pigments instead of buying Mm -hmm. tubes of paint. And that is where I draw the line because I... don't have the fucking time <laughs> you know I, like right. if i i totally respect that and i think it's so cool and i think that you can dive into material to the ends of the earth uh but at the end of the day i want to sit down and paint you know i i i can only focus on material so far um mm. so where do you draw that line of materiality like how far does material take you before it gets into the making process. It made me think of a couple things. And and I think that I do what you're saying. Like I make my own canvases and I make mm. my own pigments when I make steel, when I make Damascus, sure. and when I make the copper laminates and stuff like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because some people, like what Koi does, Koi Baker that I talked about, he makes these fancy steel so that knife makers can just buy it and make their knife out of that. Oh, cool. mm. so they don't have to go through the process. They don't have the knowledge. They don't have the experience to make it themselves. Okay. So I know that I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to, like, I could probably get some steel from him easily because we're friends, but I don't want to. I want to, any steel that I use, it's going to be something that I made. Yeah. Dope. And the other thing that, that made me think about was reclaimed materials, like reclaimed mm-hmm. steel. A lot of uh, professional knife makers will eventually steer away from that because of the unknown of not knowing exactly what type of steel it is and not knowing um, if there's cracks or anything in there. But there's also a lot of tests and processes you can do to ensure that it is good steel and actually have these three huge like coil springs from trains. They're about an inch and a quarter Mm. round. Have thousand knives or so worth of steel in there, probably more. <laughs> oh my God. And and I'm going to use it because yeah. I've done some tests 
and I've been like, okay, this is great steel, and it's actually some of the best coil spring material I've found. And um, and what kind of inspired me to do more of that reclaim work is because I actually work in a shop called Hilltop Barnwood Shop, and they do reclaim woodwork. Mm-hmm. So they take old wood from barns and refurbish it into and make flooring and you know doors and all kinds of stuff. And so. I like that idea of like, I I've gone to the scrapyard and taken a piece of junk and turned it into a $600 knife, you know? Yeah. Right. Like right. an old file or something. And, you know, I think that whole concept is pretty amazing. And I, and I think it has a lot of appeal too. And mm. in the history of the material and stuff like that, like Nepal and some other countries like that, they, their main steel is like leaf spring and uh, a lot of, uh, you know, other third world countries and stuff like that will mostly only use reclaimed steel because it's all they really have access to mm-hmm. when it comes to knife steel. So where do you feel like you find yourself now career-wise? Like, um, do you feel like you have a target audience or like a pretty loyal clientele um, that keeps you afloat? Or are you still on the hunt for that? Yeah, I mean, I don't like... I have a good following on Instagram and I work at a gallery now and, and stuff like that. But I wouldn't really say that I have much of a following or much of a, a customer base yet. Like I get work when I get work and I make enough money for what I'm doing right now and keeping my business running and everything like that. Um, mm-hmm. But I want to get to that point where like, okay, this is how many orders I can take this month and like right. have that demand. Like I don't have, I don't have the demand completely there yet mm-hmm. and, and i'm also trying to not really rush that because mm-hmm. right now i kind of am in at this point where if i want to make something different or i want to make something like i can kind of make whatever i want yeah right and i've still been getting orders and stuff like that but i'm going to get to a point where i'm going to have to be doing stuff that maybe i don't want to be doing mm-hmm. and that can be hard for sure definitely but, yeah uh, i think i like the way a lot of the way Koi does his business and how a lot of people do it is built. There's a couple ways of doing it. You could be like, okay, my custom books are open. And I'm taking this many custom orders, or you could have a newsletter where it's like, these are the pieces that are available. Yeah. But having that cap to be like, okay, this is how much work I'm going to mm-hmm. do. And, mm-hmm. and not being like, oh, I have all these orders and this stuff. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like most uh, blacksmiths and, and knife makers that I've, talk to you about doing it as a job they're like it's hard like i won't recommend it (laughs) 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 so sign me up (laughs) yeah yeah and i think uh whatever you do it's a job and it's gonna be hard no matter what but uh i think kind of what's gonna keep me going with it is is knowing that you know i'm making art that's gonna outlive me and i think my work's important and I think it's uh I think it speaks to who I am and stuff like that. So I think that's mm-hmm. really what's going to keep me going with it. That's the whole deal, man. Yeah. That's to me, that's what it's all about. You're right. It's just like, how do I wake up in the morning knowing that I'm doing something that's important to me and that I believe in, you know, that's like always been the driving force for sure. Yeah. I think mm-hmm. that at one point or another, all of us in some type of creative or craftsman pursuit have been told to not do this. I like, I (laughs) seriously though, I remember 
being in an art class and the teacher saying, if you can do literally anything else in life and be happy, fucking do it because this is Mm. hard and you have to be obsessed in order Mm. to continue this. And it has to be what you go to bed thinking about and wake up thinking about, because if you don't, you're going to burn out. You're going to stop. You're going to resent it. And, um, yeah, if you can be happy doing anything else, wow, great, go do it. (laughs) Um, So what is it? I mean, this, this sense of purpose and this sense of, um, you know, putting your time and effort into something that you believe in is definitely a, um, a really wonderful driving force. But as far as this craft specifically, what is it that keeps you going? Is it process? Is it the material? Is it the object? Is it the community? What keeps you latched onto that? Hmm. I think it's knowing that it's an ancient craft and that it's something that we need to hold on to. And, and really the big thing is I'm a teacher too. And, you know, teaching young people that they can do things with their hands and they can, you know, make stuff. Cause I think in the world we live in now, like not many people have these skills to make things with their hands. And I just think there's been a disconnect in our culture with having all this technology that can do things for us. Not a lot of people have the skills to make things for themselves and Mm -hmm. have that relationship to the maker and to the, where it comes from. Like you can buy a knife from Walmart, but you don't know, you don't have a relationship to the maker and where that comes from. There used to be a time where you went to the blacksmith to get your hardware and then you went to the baker to get your bread or like, Mm -hmm. and now, you know, we live in a world where, we don't see where any of it comes from. We don't have this relationship with this community anymore. Yeah. Right. I struggle with that issue with like buying fucking home goods art. (laughs) It's like (laughs) people are now used to this idea that you buy a two foot by three foot canvas with like a 72 DPI image on it for like 25 bucks and, you know, put that on your wall and feel good about that. And that's, that's not to shit on people who like buy that stuff, but I just wish that it wasn't even an option because Mm -hmm. it does saturate what people are putting their life into, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that um, I I completely agree with you where, um, you know, it's this disconnect with community where you can click a button and then something shows up at your door instead of having a conversation with somebody down the street who puts their time and effort and energy and heart into something. You know, mm-hmm. you, you're you're funding a large corporation that funds a lot of disgusting things on this planet instead of, you know, funding the people down the street and their passions. Totally. So let me ask, like, uh, if you get a custom order for a knife, what are like the specifics that people are looking for? Are you is it like weight? Is it the length of the blade, the handle? What are the specifics? Typically- most of the custom orders I've gotten is like, I like this shape. I want it to be this length. And that's pretty much it. Okay. I haven't gotten anything like really more specific to that. A lot of people are like, like to just see what I come up with, Mm -hmm. which I like that. But also every time I do an order like that, I'm like, well, is this actually what they were looking for? Like, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 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 Do you prefer making an object and then selling that object or do you prefer people asking for something more specific like that even if it is open-ended i like 
making what I want to make. Mm-hmm. But right now I just take whatever work I can get, you know, sure. totally. And that's custom or, or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm thinking like right now, uh, it would be a good idea for me to make a lot more like simple knives that I can sell for like $200, but it's just kind of getting the energy and motivation to spend a week making the same knife over and over. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there, there can be a lot of production involved, which I think can be where it becomes really challenging because it starts to feel like, uh, almost can feel like you're working on a symbol line or something. Yeah. Like you just like cranking it out. Definitely. And that's not what I want to do. <laughs> yeah. You know, a lot of people do their work that way, but I really want to get to that place where I'm making like these intricate, fancy knives that I can sell like a couple a month. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also good to kind of mix it up because it's also really stressful to work on a project mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, for, for most of this year, it's like, I like this knife. How can I make it better? Like each knife, I think I've been making better than the last one. So that can be like really stressful to try and keep that up. So it can also be nice to come back to, okay, I know how to do this and I can mm-hmm. make this over and over again without thinking about it. Right. Totally. Yeah. yeah. So we were talking earlier about how um, the history of, of craft can inform what we do. And, um, you know, I you spoke a little bit that, about that as far as process goes, but as far as the actual visuals go, like are there uh, silhouettes or shapes that are inspired by something that already exists? I mean, I, I know that it, because it's mm-hmm. a utilitarian object, there's only so far that you can go with innovating that. And mm. so I'm curious um, how you take what's already there. I think a lot of my kitchen knives are Japanese inspired in their shapes. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, the shapes that we're using have been used for centuries. And there are people who have like Jason Knight who have their very unique and everyone really has their unique style and like things that they bring to the work. But really, they're basing their knives off of these patterns that have been around forever. Mm-hmm. A knife is 2D basically in its dimension and shape. So like there's only so much you can do to make that unique. But it's really the subtleties is what set things apart. Like just a little bit of a different curve in the edge or like a little bit of a different shape on the spine or the handle or whatever. No two knife makers work looks the same, obviously, mm-hmm. but that, that can be really challenging to figure out, well, how do I make this my own shape and my own design? That's something mm-hmm. I'm still learning. Yeah. 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 So I guess like, uh, what I'm curious about now is what projects you have coming up or ideas that you want to work on um, that you're excited about. Is there anything new on the horizon that you're that you're looking to try? Yeah. Um, so I have this mosaic Damascus that I've had sitting uh, in my room that isn't finished that I made with Koi at his shop. And it seems like it's going to be a while before I get to go back there. And I now have the equipment to really do it on my own. So I'm, I'm trying to get the courage to just go for it. And, uh, mm-hmm. if I failed and whatever, but it's <laughs> hard because when you make mosaic, you have to stack up like $50 worth of steel or something and you could potentially waste it. But I've been really wanting to take my Damascus to the next level. Cause I think that I definitely have the skills to do it. I just need to go for it. I have a heat treating kiln coming in soon, which I'm really excited about. That's going to mean when I go to heat treat, harden my steel. It works similar to a ceramic kiln. Just turn it on, heats up to the exact temperature. And that's going to really improve the quality of my blades and 
and give me a consistent result every single time, which I'm really excited about. Mm. Is that kind of how you finalize the blade with heat treating? So steel is, uh, is it has a crystalline structure to it, and steel is made out of carbon and iron, right? So different mm-hmm. types of steel have different percentages of carbon in them. So what we're using for knife steel is a high-carbon steel, which has between 0.6 on the low end to 0.9% percentages of carbon. That's all it takes, you know, it's not very much. This is a little sidetrack, but back when they used to make steel, you know, you would take pure iron and put it in this furnace with charcoal, and it's basically becoming molten, and then it's absorbing the carbon from the charcoal, and that's how they would make Mm. steel. And so before, you know, we could produce steel like we had now, and, and this is, I wanted to mention this earlier, but this is where this ancient technique has carried through into like these fancy new, it's called sand mai or different laminates like that. We're using mild steel on the outside and high carbon in the center. That's how most blades mm-hmm. used to be made because this process of making high carbon steel took a long time and it was very expensive. So when people made blades, they wanted to use as little high carbon steel as possible. So they would set it up so that it would only be on the edge because the rest of the knife doesn't need to be high carbon, right? So that's where that technique of sand mai has come from and how how we get some of the patterns that we do now. But anyway, so steel is a crystalline structure. And this is where that science comes in of when you buy steel from the manufacturer. And, and this is another thing about knife making is some people will buy steel and just cut out the shape, which... It's fine, mm-hmm. I guess, but I think that takes out a lot of the art for me in it, which is forging the shape and being able to take a drawing or whatever it is and be able to forge that, take it from shape. steel and use fire and hammers to get the shape instead of just taking a saw and cutting it out. Because anyone can do that, right? Right. Anyways, right. Um, so when you get the steel from the manufacturer, it's annealed. So some people will just take that and go to harden it, but don't know that it's not ready to be hardened yet. And so when we forge the steel or when it comes from the manufacturer, no matter how you're doing it, it needs to be normalized. We need to refine the grain structure because when it's being forged, it's heated to all these different temperatures and strange things are happening within the grain and the crystalline structure of the steel. So when we have to normalize it, normalizing is bringing it up to critical temperature which is also known as austenite. We have to bring it up to that temperature, which is for high carbon steel is usually around 15 to 1600 degrees. And so this is where the kiln is going to come in because I can just set that temperature on it, put it in there. And then you let it cool down below 500 degrees. You do that three times and that's refining that grain structure. And it's basically, mm-hmm. so steel is made out of carbon and iron. It's basically trapping those carbon molecules inside the iron, aligning everything Um, Because if we just went from forging to quenching the blade, and if you snap that blade in half, it would have really large grain structure. It would look like sand. And so if you tried to make a knife like that and went to, you know, even if it was tempered and everything correctly, you could go and whack it against something. It could break in half. It could chip really easily. Mm. So when you are normalizing it and refining the grain, that's really what makes the quality of it. And, you know, I've taken my knife and chopped through cow bone antler with them, and they didn't Whoa. take much damage because they're heat treated properly. And so then that last step 
after it's been normalizing, you bring it, bring it up to 1500 one more time, harden it in the oil. And so that's creating martensite. So you're taking austenite and transforming it into martensite. And that's trapping that crystalline structure where it is. Because before it's been hardened, it's a useless piece of steel. So quenching it is really what makes it into a knife and what makes it, like a lot of people mm. say, quenching is what brings the soul into the knife. Because before it has been quenched, it's not a knife. Mm. So it traps that structure and it, the knife becomes so brittle that uh, if you dropped it on the ground, it could shatter. Um, wow. So then the next step is to temper it. So you take it, you just put it in like a normal oven at 400 degrees or different temperatures, depending. I do two one and a half hour cycles, and that reduces the hardness to the point. My knives usually end up around 60 Rockwell, which is the hardness scale. Um, my kitchen mm. knives, I'll take a little bit harder. But uh, after the knife is tempered like that, you should be able to, if it's thin enough, bend it 90 degrees and it'll come back. Because... Wow. Not only is it what, yeah, that's the, one of the journeyman Smith tests in the American Bladesmith Society is to make a knife that uh, you cut through a two by four with it twice should still be able to shave, cut rope, and then you bend it ninety degrees, and it doesn't have to come back through, but it has to not break, and uh, that's mm. the test to see if you are heat treating properly and you know know what you're doing because a lot of people don't. Dang. Most people don't know how to do that, right? Dude, how the fuck did they figure this out <laughs> way back in the day? Like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah. Like, you have all these precise temperatures and everything that you know now, but a dude with a bunch of coal in an well, oven, like, that's fucked up, be, man. It wow. can all be done by eye, and I can still do it by eye. What? Another way to tell you're at critical temperature is um, the steel will become non-magnetic when it's at critical temperature. Huh. So, yeah, when steel reaches that austenite critical temperature, it loses its magnetism, and that's right at the right temperature that it'll it can harden. Another trick is you can put salt on it, and salt melts at about 1,475 degrees, which is right where you want it. So once you see that salt melt on the blade, you know you're at the right temperature. <laughs> that is <Jesus>. wild. <laughs> wow. I don't know. Something that I was thinking about talking about was like how we think as humans now we're like so advanced and um, have the technology that we're we're smarter and more capable than ever but i honestly think that we're more arrogant and like and helpless than ever because nobody knows how to make their own tools nobody knows how to grow their own food no one knows how to hunt no one knows how to you know yeah <laughs> a lot of friends will tell me like, oh, if, there, if there's ever apocalypse, man, you're set. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Sweet. Yeah. Well, I think that's a nice end note there. Yeah. So first off, thank you for coming and chatting with us. It's been super cool, really informative shit that I had no fucking clue about. So thank you. Thank <laughs> Yeah. And we always ask for three artists you recommend that we check out, talk to, or share some love to. So who do you got? Uh, that guy I was talking about earlier, Brendan Bohannon, uh, Yahala Forge. He's in Tennessee. You know, he's a he's a novice knife maker, but he's trying to he's going all in and trying to make it his job. So I totally respect him for that. I think mm -hmm. it's awesome. He's doing good work. Mm -hmm. Colin Ingalls, uh, who's one of my students at the camp I teach at, this Boy Scout camp. He took a blacksmithing class with me at that camp. 
and he's a knife maker. Um, go check out his work, Norris Knife. Cool. And Jamar Woods, my friend, who's an amazing musician. He's been doing it for a long time. So. Excellent. Shit, man. Thank you so much. Yeah. Really appreciate it. Thanks for uh, sharing your time and your knowledge. Thanks for tuning in to episode 28 of the Seedcast featuring Bladesmith and Blacksmith Jasper Herr. For more information about our show and our guests, both previous and upcoming, please follow us at the Seedcast on Instagram or email us at casttheseed at gmail.com. Coming up next week, we sit down with tattoo artist and painter Hannah Medeiros. Stay tuned in. <laughs>